Hello, welcome to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. I'm Pete. I'm going to start this season by sharing the news that Sanitrax International, our title sponsor for the first two years, has been acquired by Satellite Industries, one of the world's leading suppliers of portable toilet equipment, service trucks, deodorizers, and cleaning supplies. Satellite's aim is to sell the best portable sanitation products in the world, and their strategic statements say that their unique ability to understand their customers' needs and a single-minded focus on providing continuous quality improvements and innovation has allowed them to maintain their worldwide leadership position. Well, I have to say, acquiring a world-class product like Sanitrax certainly fits that vision. I'd like to congratulate Marcel and the rest of the Sanitrax team, and I wish everyone at Satellite all the best. I'm really excited to see what this new chapter brings for vacuum flushing modular restroom systems. My guest this week is Dr Stephanie Weir, a marine biologist who spent the last 20 years as an environmental advocate for the Nature Conservancy. Stephanie is based in North Carolina, and she combines academic research with practical work on the ground or in the sea. She's incredibly well-published, both in academic journals and the mainstream media. And she's passionate about poo, specifically the impact of human waste on marine life in the ocean. She sits on the steering committee of a new organisation called the Ocean Sewage Alliance. We'll hear all about that in a moment, but before I play the interview, I'd like to take a few moments just to frame the conversation you're about to hear. When I started Get Flushed in May 2020, I saw it very much as a podcast about portable restrooms and the work that goes on behind the scenes at a portable toilet operation. I said at the time that I'd been into some really unpleasant portable restrooms at concerts and events and that I wanted to do my bit to help restroom operators improve the standards they provide. Now, over the last two years, I've been able to extend the show and explore the wider challenges and issues presented by human sanitation, which I'm going to define as the management of human faeces, urine and menstrual blood. Now, that might not seem an appetising subject for a podcast, but I think we've done pretty well. The lack of proper sanitation is recognised as one of the biggest challenges facing the world, and it's not just a problem that's confined to developing or emerging nations or remote communities. It's really hard in 2022 to understand how billions of people have little or no access to fresh water and clean toilets when so many of us are able to flush away our poo with drinking quality water. It's crazy. And while that's cause for thought in itself, I was even more shocked to learn that an alarming amount of our flush sewage ends up polluting our oceans, rivers and streams. I'll allow Stephanie to explain more. Welcome today, Stephanie Weir from the Nature Conservancy. And Stephanie, I'm really grateful that you've come on the show. Thank you for your time. I'm really happy to be here, Pete. Thanks. Perhaps easiest if you introduce yourself, I think. I am Stephanie Weir, and I work for the Nature Conservancy, which is a global conservation organization. Our focus is on um, protecting nature for nature and people. I've spent the last 20 years of my life at the Nature Conservancy I'm a marine biologist, so I started out working in the Caribbean and um, focused really on all the ocean life in the Caribbean Sea. And from there, I've expanded and I've worked globally. I've worked all over the world. And now I find myself completely obsessed with toilets, sewage, all things sanitation because of the impacts that they have on the habitats that I'm working to protect. We'll get into that, but you've had a really glamorous and exciting career. But when I read through your biography, I'm really jealous. Yeah, there have been some pretty weird moments. One of the roles I've had at the Nature Conservancy is I've acted as a global spokesperson. And when you have that role, you can end up 
finding yourself on Martha Stewart's talk show or at a Hollywood premiere getting interviewed with Pierce Brosnan. I've had many like pinch me moments in my career where I just was like, what the heck am I doing here? This does not make sense to me at all. Can we define the ocean sewage problem in simple terms that listeners might be able to grasp and understand the magnitude of the issue that's at stake? We've been using the term ocean sewage, which maybe isn't the best term because it, well, it sounds like there's sewage coming from the oceans, but we're really talking about what's going into the oceans. And it doesn't necessarily have to be from a sewer pipe. It could be from septic or cesspools. It often is, or even open defecation. But the problem is actually quite serious. You can imagine wherever you have people, you have poop, right? And if they're on the coast or near a river, you've got to be able to manage that in a way that it's not polluting the waters, whether it's a river or ocean. And we're not doing such a great job of that on a global scale. When I first got into this, I was thinking about tropical developing countries and coral reefs specifically. A lot of these places don't have great infrastructure for sanitation. And so obviously this is going to be a problem. An example you know, in the Caribbean, where I started my work, 85% of the wastewater is discharged raw, untreated into the Caribbean Sea. Very little of the wastewater in the Caribbean is getting any kind of treatment at all. That ends up not being so much of an anomaly. There are lots of parts of the world, some places where the ocean is the toilet. You can find many places where there's a beach, and that's the community's toilet. Everybody goes to that beach to defecate. And so that's kind of where it started. I thought, okay, obviously this is a problem. But then I started learning that this is a problem in rich countries, in countries that have excellent infrastructure, supposedly, right? We've had infrastructure for 100, 150 years to manage our waste. And the problem has to do with some engineering design that was put in place long ago, as well as aging infrastructure. So we've got aging pipes. An example for you is in the U.S., there's a million miles of pipe that need to be replaced right now. That's an extremely expensive problem. I spoke about this with Deep from the Toilet Board Coalition last week. He was in New Delhi. He said exactly the same thing, that it's not just an undeveloped country problem. It's a, it's a global problem. And the developed nations, which have got existing sewer networks, are in the same boat because those networks are now over 100 years old and are starting to fail. Exactly. The UK has lots of great examples how this is contributing to coastal pollution. Yeah. When I talk about the engineering, there's a something called a combined sewer. And it's when you combine your wastewater pipes, like your household sewage pipes, with stormwater pipes. So it's a combined sewer overflow system. And so every time there's too much water for a treatment plant to handle, they release it right? So they release the sewage. It could be partially treated or it could be not treated at all. Often that's the case. And so basically anytime it rains, it doesn't even need to rain very much at all. These systems have to re release and discharge. So fun fact from the UK, I was looking at some data recently in Wales in the year, I think 2017, there were 30,000 sewage discharges in one year, just in Wales. Of all of these combined sewer overflow systems, about less than half of them are actually monitored. Across the UK, there's about 17,000. We have no idea what's being discharged there, right? Fergal Sharkey is really vocal about this, calling the water companies out. 
I think they've taken the perspective that it's cheaper for them to pay the fine and release the overflow than it is to put the engineering in place to stop it happening in the first instance. And that's the sort of short-sightedness of it all, because it may be cheaper today, but in the long term, it's going to have disastrous impacts on the habitats, the human health. There's actually an organization in the UK called Surfers Against Sewage that have a pretty interesting advocacy campaign. And they even have like an app where you can get information about the beach that you're going to and find out if it's had a recent sewage discharge, if it's safe to swim there. And they also allow you to contact your MP. And there's like a, it's almost like a form letter or something that goes to them to say, hey, we are concerned about this location, this beach or whatever. So they're putting on a lot of public pressure for the government to stop. And actually, I think the UK in one sense is doing something that I haven't seen in others is they notify the public. There are notifications when they discharge, which a lot of places just happens secretly and you, you never know what's going on. We've got a pretty fair system in New Zealand that all of the local councils maintain a water quality index and you can go online and check the water quality at your nearest beach or swimming hole. But we're not immune to these problems. It's happening in Wellington, our capital city. They have regular discharges. It's happening up north. It's happening all over the South Island. Half of the South Island for the past year, two, three years has been on boil notice for their drinking water. And it's hard to know whether that's because of E. coli from human waste or whether it's from dairy and agricultural waste. But regardless, it's still a major issue for us. Right. The waste can be coming from people or animals either way. And both are problematic. The boil notice is a pretty disconcerting thing to have happen when you know you can't drink your water. And so you think about that happening in a place that is as advanced from a development perspective as New Zealand. Just imagine what it's like in places where they've got nothing. You know, they're always having to consume dirty water and all the public health issues that come from that. So this is really a hairy, complicated problem One of the things about pollution is that compared to other threats that we face in the environmental world where we're, you know, we're looking at like overfishing or there's habitat destruction, or we can quantify what's happening with climate and see it even with weather pattern changes and oceans heating up and all that. But pollution is really often invisible. And this kind of pollution is very invisible because these pipes, sometimes they're submerged. They're under the sea or in a river where you can't see what's getting discharged. And people don't want to think about this stuff. Yeah, This is the out of sight, out of mind, flush it, forget it. They just don't want to think about it. You don't really know what's happening until you take a deeper look. Septic waste is feces and urine and then whatever other chemicals have been added to that mix. And if that's discharged, even in a diluted state, what is the direct impact on the marine life uh, in the immediate area? But then I suppose we need to think about long term because water is not static, is it? It moves. Yeah. So this invisibility is a problem until you take a deeper dive. And I originally was looking at coral reefs. Now, coral reefs are the poster child for this problem because they're in, in places that don't have infrastructure and a lot of sanitation. But they also live in waters that, I mean, what do you think of when you think of a coral reef? What does the water look like? Oh, pristine picture postcard stuff. Right. It's clear. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's crystal clear blue water. And that is a defining feature of a coral reef because coral reefs thrive in that environment. They need what we call a nutrient-poor environment. That means that there's very little nitrogen or phosphorus in the water column. 
darker waters. So when you think of maybe the waters, some of the areas off of the coast of New Zealand that are darker, there's nutrients that are getting pushed up from the ocean floor. There are contributions from rivers and things like that. There are parts of the ocean that are just really nutrient rich. So does coral not like that? No, corals don't. There's a number of reasons, but one is they are competing for space and light. They live off of sunlight. They have tiny plants that live in their bodies that photosynthesize and give them food to survive. And so if you've heard about coral bleaching, that's when they've expelled those tiny plants because they're stressed out because it's hot, it's too hot. Um, and so they lose that food source, right? So they are competing for sunlight and they're competing for space. Now, who they're competing with are seaweed. So seaweed grow really fast and they can grow all over and cover a coral. And seaweed love nutrients. So these things cannot coexist together because what happens is once you get lots of nutrients in the water, whatever little baby seaweeds that are hanging out, hoping for their opportunity are going to explode and cover reefs and kill them, smother them. So they can't get access to that light and they lose their hold, get invaded basically. So in coral reefs, that's kind of what's going on. There's this battle between seaweed and corals. And if you get lots of nutrients, you lose it. You just end up with an algae reef or a seaweed reef. Also that nutrients and all the other things you talked about that's in sewage, like pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, endocrine disruptors, hormones, and things that people take, those have an effect on these animals as well. So we have seen changes in even how gender is expressed in some invertebrates. We're finding like all females of something because they're getting exposed to like basically the birth control pills of a community. Those chemicals are in concentrations high enough to have impacts on um, near shore communities. So coral reefs, it's obvious to most um, marine scientists that yeah, coral reefs wouldn't be able to handle this kind of pollution. But what's interesting is when you get into temperate climates like where you are in New Zealand or the Northeast of the US, or even where they have mangroves in Australia, these systems also have problems. And this is something that a lot of people have not appreciated because these are wetlands and wetlands are known to um, filter water and act as natural filters. So we've used them that way. We've actually dumped sewage. And they've absorbed all of the waste and the nutrients. Right. And then they can yeah. take up all the nasty things and hold them in their tissues and and filter it so that the water adjacent doesn't get too impacted. But what happens is you're just flooding these plant communities, whether it's a mangrove or a marsh, with extra nutrients. And these are systems that love nutrients. But what happens is they change. We call this the root to shoot ratio. Okay. So your roots below ground, your shoots above ground, whether it's a tree or grass changes and all the energy that had gone to growing roots, which hold onto the sediment and play all kinds of important roles, switches to shoots above ground. And so you get what looks like a really healthy mangrove stand or a really healthy marsh grass stand. And it could just be this vast meadow of salt marsh. And you think, wow, this looks great. But what is going on beneath is that they now have very shallow systems of roots. And so like in the Northeast of the US, New England, you get a big storm, you get sea level rise and you get erosion. They calve off like an iceberg where when you've added that kind of nutrients, you just lose the marsh. And the same thing in mangroves, when you get drought, high salinity conditions, low freshwater conditions, 
they don't have roots to like fall back on to keep them through the tough times and they die back or they die off. So I'm guessing that in turn contributes to coastal erosion as well then, because those mangroves and everything hold the land together against the forces of the sea. First, you're losing the protection of these coastal habitats that really buffer waves and and allow people to live in coastal communities because they're protecting them. But then you just start losing land. The land just disappears. Then you're also losing the fishery nursery. These places are important nursery habitat for fisheries. And they're also really important for what people are now calling blue carbon. So a place to store carbon. So we think of trees as carbon stores. They can hold a lot of carbon. And it's why we shouldn't be cutting down and burning our Amazon rainforest and things like that, because they're holding a lot of carbon that otherwise is in the atmosphere. But the same thing goes for marine habitats, seagrasses, marshes, mangroves. They're holding on to carbon in their sediments and in their tissues. So we lose them, we lose that storage. So there's just all these effects. It's like a domino. With the growth in the global population over the last 50 years and projected future growth in population, this problem is only going to accelerate unless we fundamentally change the way we're dealing with septic waste. Absolutely. And also because there's this huge migration to coastal areas. Everybody wants to live near the sea. Everybody. <laughs> I get it. I mean, it's a place of important for commerce, but it's also really the human condition. A lot of us love to be near the sea, and I get that. I'm a marine biologist. Well, Australia and New Zealand are classic examples of that. We've got very few cities that are inland, and where they are, they're tourist destinations, so they, they typically attract lots of people at peak time, but again, don't have the necessary infrastructure for dealing with all of that waste. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that is really important as we look at the world and understand that there are a lot of places that need sanitation infrastructure, and then there are a lot of places that need updates to their infrastructure, is that this is all in the face of global change and looking at climate change and how that's going to play a role in impacting communities. If you've got big storm events in a place where the sanitation system isn't prepared, right, maybe they're not high enough up or they don't have the capacity to handle the water, you're going to be having people with sewage in their homes and in their yards and throughout their communities. It's got to go somewhere. And we've seen this happen. This isn't like in the future. It happens regularly. We had a really wet winter and large areas of the country were washed out. The freshwater reservoirs were at maybe 15% capacity at the end of summer. And literally overnight, they went up to 85% capacity. So much rain. The overspill that you've mentioned, dairy effluent ponds were the obvious ones. They were washed out into the general land around. And then the sewage network was just completely, as you said, you have the overflow network. And a huge amount of rain like that washes all of that septic into the rivers and the waterways and then into the ocean. But it's not just a New Zealand problem. It's a global problem. Everywhere there are people, this has become an issue. It is an issue. There are very few places that have really figured out or have taken this seriously, right? Because there's solutions that exist. But taking it seriously, sanitation is often at the bottom of the list. The sanitation experts I've talked to and, you know, I've talked to folks in the German government that are exclusively focused on bringing sanitation to developing countries. They are like, you know, nobody wants to hear about this. Nobody wants to talk about it. They don't want to hear us talk about this problem again. Everybody just wants to ignore it. I live in North Carolina in the U.S., on the east coast of the U.S., and every summer we get hurricanes, or you, I guess you guys call them cyclones. And we get those, and we have big pig farms in North Carolina. I think it's a pig farming capital of the U.S. 
And every time our pig farm waste pits get washed out into the rivers and into the sea um, when we have big storm events and hurricanes. This is like almost an annual thing. New Zealand's built this marketing campaign over the last 20, 30 years, 100% pure. But one of the problems we've had is the invasion of Didymo, which is an algae, and it's invaded all of our pristine. I'm parked up today next to the Clutha River, which is crystal clear and is still teeming with fish. It's a really, on the surface of it, a really healthy river. But you don't have to go very far before you find pockets where the riverbed has been completely strangled by Didymo. And it's like a green slime. It stinks when it's out of the water and it just completely throttles all of the aquatic life. Now, I'm, I'm not expert enough to know whether you can trace that back to the explosion in dairy farming in New Zealand, which has happened over the last 20 years. But it wasn't here before the dairy farms. Yeah, they actually can track the source of the nitrogen by using isotope analysis, where they actually look and figure out this came from a pig or a, a sheep or a person. Some of that work happens in places that have those kinds of resources, but it sounds like it's connected to some kind of land-based pollution. And you're seeing exactly what plays out on a coral reef or other systems where this opportunistic weed takes over and it will choke out in many places, just choke out the other wildlife, um, the fish. You know, we see this happen when you hear of like red tides or brown tides, um, those are common in places like the mouth of the Mississippi River in the Gulf of Mexico, where there's so much nutrients coming down from all the agriculture that we have along the Mississippi that dumps into the Gulf of Mexico. And it causes these toxic algal blooms, like tiny microscopic algae. But you can see them when there's enough of them, red, brown, what, whatnot. And that causes them to basically suck up all the oxygen in the water column. So it can cause fish death because there's no oxygen in the water. We're in the crazy situation where um, forever we've had fire notice boards, fire warning boards. So you drive around and, and it will say today's fire risk is, and then it's green, amber, and red. And then there's a, I think there's a black at the other end, which is like super extreme danger. We're starting to see um, algal bloom boards crop up now at swimming holes because the waterways, um, especially during the summer when it's been hot and the water flow is not as high because high flow will wash a lot of the toxic stuff away. But when the water flows are really low, we're starting to see algal blooms. And I, I know as a dog owner, they're really toxic to dogs. Well, if they're toxic to your dog, they're toxic to everything else without a shadow of a doubt. Absolutely. And they have linked a number of different um, health issues to these toxic algal blooms. Depending on what's there, they can emit toxic gases. They've found that they can cause um, neurological problems. It's still in development, but some pretty crazy stuff linking them to types of um, dementia or al Alzheimer's, um, just having exposure to these chemicals. I'm guessing that, that simple marine life would be even more vulnerable than humans who've got the advantages of medicine and all of the knowledge that we've got. Some marine life will blow your mind and how complex they are, but they haven't evolved to deal with the crazy things that people are throwing at them, right? They can only do so much. Yeah. I mean, they've got chemical warfare that they use. They have chemistry that they use to protect themselves, but they can only do so much. I mean, coral reefs are interesting and they have the same sort of, you know, we have a gut microbiome that is a big part of our immune system. Coral reefs have a microbiome over the surface of the coral animal. It's a colonial animal, but there's a film of microbes that protect the coral. So you can imagine coming into contact with an antibiotic is going to disrupt that microbiome. And that microbiome pr protects the coral from disease and 
encroachment from other corals or uh, seaweeds. So yeah, I mean, they're not, we're throwing too many things at these little critters to say the least. At the risk of us painting a really dismal and abjectly depressing picture. There's so much hope. <laughs> well, is there? That, what can yeah. we do? And is it too late, Stephanie? It, is there a solution? And, and are there simple steps that people can take on an individual basis? And then can we extend that to look at what does the global response or the political response need to look like? Because it's not all doom and gloom. I'm... It's not all doom and gloom. In fact, there are really exciting solutions that create multiple benefits, not just ending the pollution getting to what people can do. So there's many layers as with anything of what people can do. And it really depends on where you are and what kind of sanitation is in your community or in your home. So assuming you're fortunate enough to have sanitation, most people listening to a podcast are going to likely have sanitation. If you're living in a community that has a combined sewer system, um, which is very common, one of the things that's become really clear to me is when it's raining, they're going to be dumping. So that's not a time to use a lot of water. So as a simple activity in your home, don't take a shower, don't run the dishwasher or do the dishes, don't use water during those big heavy rains. Now, I spent a lot of time living in islands where I had a cistern. And so when it rained and the cistern filled and it was overflowing, that was my time to go take a shower and (laughs) fill up my buckets to water my plants or whatever. But when you're not in a cistern-based system, using water during those times is is not wise because you're just adding more. You're adding to the flood. Thinking a lot about what's going down the toilet. I was talking to my team today and we were kind of joking about all the things. I mean, it's not funny, but you start to have to sort of laugh. All the things we see in sewer systems. Like we had this picture where we were like, okay, there's a tennis ball, there's an apple, there's <laughs> this big glob of fat. There's this thing called fatbergs, which maybe you've heard about when yeah. people put grease down the sink. There's all this crazy stuff and um, none of that should be going down the toilet. None of that should be going down the drain in your kitchen and all the pills. So we were like, how many movies have we seen where the cops come and they're dumping the cocaine or the pills down the toilet? Straight down the john. Yeah. Our culture is to like use the toilet as a disposal. Yeah, it is because you flush it and it's gone. You don't need to think about it. Yeah. And so we really have to change that mindset. It's not a means of disposal, except for when it comes to human waste. That's an acceptable use. There's no such thing, for example, as a flushable wipe. Flushable wipes are not flushable. They They just go in and clog the system and create backups that create floods and things like that. So What goes down your toilet or down your kitchen sink is something you need to stop and think about. You can't help it if you're having to take an antidepressant or a hormone replacement therapy drug. It's going to go through your body and into the toilet and out into the environment. You've got to take it, so you got to take it. But don't be putting your extra pills down the toilet. It's literally pee-poo paper. It's the three Yeah, exactly. And that's all that should be going down. And when I spoke to Daryl at our local council, he was the wastewater engineer. He made that point really clearly. And and wet wipes is a huge issue. Billy Joe came on the show and talked about her B-Day spray foam. Uh-huh. It, it's developed that exactly because of the problem with wet wipes, that they cause massive problems. And I know from dealing with portable toilet waste at the heart of all of the problems that I've ever encountered, whether it's a pump problem or a sewer problem, always a wet wipe every single time. Yep. Yep. And unfortunately, they call them flushable. And they're not flushable. And and there's all sorts of personal care products that have no business going down the drain. I mean, even thinking about 
what you use on your body because you know it's going to wash down the drain in the shower. Being mindful of that. We're getting better on microplastics, but there's a lot of personal care products that have like exfoliant, microplastic exfoliants in them. And those end up becoming extremely toxic little plastics in the ocean that get consumed by fish. They actually get consumed by coral animals. Corals look like little anemones and they just grab things out of the water column. That's their other way they feed themselves and they will ingest microplastics. The immediate solution for us is to make a deliberate choice to stop using those products. But is there anybody who's putting the pressure onto the manufacturers and governments to start introducing global bans? There have been a number of global bans on products like that. In the last several years, the bans have taken effect so that manufacturers are no longer using plastics. Not every country has a ban in place, but this has been happening. This is one of these places where really getting involved at the local level matters. How your sanitation or your wastewater is managed in your community is something that people have a say in. Your local council are in charge of these things and they are trying to manage really difficult situations that frankly not a lot of people pay attention to. So getting involved um, in however the decision-making happens, asking for accountability, for transparency, for innovative approaches, it's a public health issue and an environmental health issue. So getting involved is really important. And, and that just, you sort of work your way up the ladder in terms of whether it's local or national, but there's been a lot of um, success in the last, I'd say in the last five, maybe even 10 years, but emphasis on in the last five or six years with some bans getting put in place and manufacturers being held accountable there. But then there's also all kinds of cool things that you can consider for your home or your community to take that waste and turn it into something valuable that we need. I've started to scratch the surface of that. Last year, I had Dylan Timney on who talked about composting toilets. And I've been trying to get the people from Home Biogas on. They've developed a unit that converts waste into methane for cooking. Yep. And then last week when I spoke to Deep at the World Toilet Coalition, he was explaining some of the initiatives that they've helped to fund where entrepreneurs are identifying alternative uses and alternative treatment methods, and they're funding that. Their job is to channel funding and um, business support to make those businesses viable and sustainable. Chelsea made the point for me last year that the gold standard of a plum sewer has been the gold standard for 100 years or so, but it's not necessarily the best solution for the future. Absolutely. The folks that I work with in the Caribbean, so there's a project there from the Global Environmental Facility in partnership with the UN Environmental Program in the Caribbean, looking at this problem of wastewater. The Caribbean, you know, I mentioned the statistic early on, it's a serious problem there. And they're working with about 18 countries in the Caribbean right now to address this. And they're very focused on the fact that decentralized treatment or sanitation is the preferred method we're not going for the gold standard of centralized sewerage systems. They're expensive. They're hard to maintain. They require tons of maintenance and technical expertise that many places don't have. And they use heaps of water as well. Yeah. They're not environmentally friendly. They contribute about 3% of greenhouse gas emissions come from sewage treatment plants. That's a lot. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually more than that, but they're still working on the calculations, but that's the conservative estimate. So they're very intensive, energy intensive and water intensive. So yeah, decentralized systems, on-site systems, small community-based systems, 
are really what you're going for. But a lot of folks don't realize that. They see what you have in Europe or in the US and they think that's what we're striving for. And frankly, it's it's not working so great for us right now. Yes, we can flush our toilet, but we're polluting our environment. Then there's the whole thing, you know, in terms of looking at new technologies. I actually got into this originally because I learned about the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation's Reinvent the Toilet project that they started around 2011, 2012. And they were doing kind of like a big prize. And they were saying, okay, reinvent the toilet. So we want a toilet that costs less than five cents a person a day, that doesn't use septic or electricity or water, that doesn't pollute, which is what piqued my interest, and that creates some sort of environmental good like water, fertilizer, fuel. And I got so excited about this because I thought, wow, they're going to get people to invent these new toilets. They're going to solve a big environmental problem and create some environmental benefits too. And so I went and talked to them and said, hey, do you understand the benefits to this initiative you have? And they said, well, yeah, we understand that there are other co-benefits, but our mission is focused on human health and restoring dignity, you know, to the several billion people that don't have access to safe sanitation. And so I left thinking, all right, I'm going to figure this out. You know, we've got to help make sure that we can direct these efforts, right? To say, hey, this is a great opportunity where you can help people in all these other ways by putting your special toilets in place. And they'd not focused on that. They were talking about the safety and the dignity aspect. Yeah. And there's huge human health safety issues, especially for women, um, public health issues. It's extremely important. And it's why I'm drawn to this because there's all these incredible benefits to people. But if you can get fertilizer, fuel, water from our waste, why are we polluting our environment with it? Chelsea made the point, why do we call it waste? Exactly. It's nutrient rich. It's got heaps of potential uses. We just haven't figured out ways to make that economically viable on a large scale at a local level, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there are some places that are doing it. I love the home biogas idea. I actually was trying to figure out if I could do that, that use that little blow up. It's like a blow up tent. Yeah. I understand you need a warm temperate climate because it, it needs heat for the bacterial action to convert the waste into methane. Right. And some of these technologies are specific to a certain climate because of that very reason. The microbial activity that they might rely on requires certain temperature ranges, but they are coming up like, for example, they're able to reclaim the water and turn it into drinkable water. They do that in Singapore. They do that in Southern California. There's a map that shows all the places in the world that are now doing this. I'm hoping to talk with the team at Sludgehammer. I've been backwards and forwardsing with them for the last month. They've got a unit which will convert the waste into just water that can be discharged. And they were telling me that they've actually got um, a cruise liner moored up in Qatar for construction workers on the World Cup stadiums. And all of their bathroom waste goes into the um, holding tanks on the ship. And they've inserted some sludge hammer units in the tank of the ship and it actually discharges what they described as drinkable water to the ocean. So it's Absolutely. I mean, I haven't heard of Sledgehammer. I love their name. That's one of the best parts about this work, isn't it? Like all the creative ways you can talk about it and all the jokes. I came across them again online. I'm going to do them a big disservice, but it's an insert that you drop into your septic tank and it manages the aerobic process within the septic tank in a way that septic tanks don't normally do. They, normally they would just leach the 
um, effluent, the, the liquid component out into the drain field, and then it would be absorbed into the soil. But the sludge hammer actually does something to the effluent so that it's not toxic when it leaves the tank. That's awesome. I definitely am going to check that out because we're working on adding additions to septic systems that make sure they get most of the nitrogen out. There's a lot of experimentation going on. As you say, making it affordable is the key, but there's a lot of demand. And I've sat on a number of um, solution searches looking for interesting technologies. I work with um, an organization called Imagine H2O, and they have an urban water challenge every year. And I've judged the last two years and I'm seeing extraordinary innovation around how people are trying to address all of the problems we're talking about, not just the toilet, but the treatment, how you monitor sewer pipes, you know, how you monitor flow and things like that, and all the tech that is getting developed. And there's some fabulous stuff around. I know there's a, a subdivision on the Sunshine Coast in Australia maybe there's a hundred homes, but all of their sewage goes into one system, which is then processed by worms. The scale of that, you know, I've come across worm compost units for the back garden, but to actually be processing black sewage with worms on a residential scale is just next level. Yeah. And that's a, such a simple solution. It's yeah, I'll, I'm going to have to check that out. It was Guy Smith at Hyrule who put me onto that. He said he was driving around the subdivision and saw all of these vent pipes and wondered what was going on. And when he asked one of the residents, he said, oh, no, we've got a worm system. It's uh, one for the entire subdivision. So every home feeds into it. But I'm guessing in hand with that, then there's a, a requirement on the homeowners to really think about what goes into that system because anything toxic will potentially kill the worm population. Right. You don't want nasty toxins getting to the worms, which is a perfect example of why we should be thinking about what's going down our, our toilet. So one of the things that has happened as I have done this work is I have sort of found my people. So I found you, interestingly enough, because of the name of your podcast, because we have been thinking about an exhibit at a, an aquarium in the U.S. called Get Flushed. Excellent. Actually, what we want to do is create a film in this circular theater at this aquarium that will be like you get flushed. Like it's an experiential film where you get feelings and maybe not smells. Of what happens. Yeah. I used to work with a guy, he was a, an agronomist, and he came up with a, a similar sort of thing, but he was trying to highlight the threat to bees. And he got an interactive display of the local supermarket, so the produce aisle with all of the vegetables. And then he said, right, so if we lose the bee population, this is what you will lose from the produce aisle. And there wasn't very much left. Yeah, yeah. By the time he got to the end of the video, it was pretty much anything that wasn't green or red. It had all gone. Yeah, so we um, are imagining creating this experience where kids will go to the aquarium and say, hey, did you get flushed? You know, like... That's the dream of doing this. And so we'll see if we end up doing it. But when I saw your get flushed, I thought, oh my gosh, is this, you know, is this about sanitation? And, you know, I was so excited. But what I have been doing is finding my people. And we have actually started a new organization because we were like, I was feeling pretty alone in the world. Like, I'm really interested in this, but it's not a big thing in the conservation space right now. So I found people at other organizations that were also interested. And now we formed a new organization called the Ocean Sewage Alliance. And we're right now 24 organizations, but that's how I learn about what's going on because we're all out there sort of 
figuring it out and bringing it back together. How do listeners find out about the Ocean Sewage Alliance then, Stephanie? Where's the best place to go? Oh, well, that's super easy. Um, you can go to oceansewagealliance.org and um, we have information about our work and everything we're learning. And we're going to be in this year developing a knowledge hub so people can come and find out about different treatment types and the impacts it has on the environment and organizations that are working on this. So that's what I did during the pandemic. I started a new organization. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. I'm, I'm happy to give you as much airtime and as much coverage through the podcast as I can because it's such an important issue. And it, as you say, it's great to have been able to find people who share that passion and that energy and that interest. And Jack Sim was just a great advocate of that. He put the sanitation issue on the table and, and allowed us all to talk about it freely and openly without feeling embarrassed and without all of the toilet jokes. And the, of course, that comes into it. But I've just been blown away how the podcast has allowed me to move into those circles and share that message. So anything I can do to support the Ocean Sewage Alliance, I'm more than happy to do that. That is awesome. I'm so excited that you got to talk to Jack Sim. I've always wanted to meet him. I've been watching his funny videos for the last 10 years. You know, he's an inspiration. and He's a fantastic fella. And, you know, I messaged him and he was like, yep, bring me at 11 o'clock tonight. That's awesome. <laughs> There's a lot of books coming out, which is exciting, you know, around this topic. My, I first read Rose George's book, The Big Necessity. It's such a good book. Oh, fabulous book. And then Pipe Dreams and The Other Dark Matter just came out. And there's going to be a book all about sewers coming out this fall. There's actually a, a toilet book club what? on Twitter, okay. I think. They, they, I'm they, going to have to check this out. I'll send you the link. But they, they, have, they have readings and... Um, I can't remember who the last one was, but because we're in New Zealand, everything's right. at stupid o'clock in the morning and it's a bit difficult in a caravan because I have to wake everybody else up when I get up. But there's definitely a growing collection of individuals who share the same passion. I've tweeted Rose a couple of times, but I, I've never been brave enough to say, hey, Rose, will you come on the podcast? Oh, you should. You know, I've talked to her just, I was, I was trying to get her to come talk at an event and it didn't end up working out, but I, she was just lovely to, um, Talk well, to. she's from Yorkshire and so am I originally, oh, well, so there you I, go. I figured I could play that link. I think you can. I've tweeted at her as well to let her know, like a lot of what I read in her book inspired me to do some of the things I'm doing. And she was really excited about that. I, you know, I'll build up courage because I, I just got the sense that she'd moved on because she's done a book about blood and a book about shipping. and It's still there in her DNA, I think. All right. I'll build up the courage. Catherine Flowers has been working on this issue of lack of sanitation in America's black belt, specifically in the, you know, the Southeast of the U.S. Um, where I live in North Carolina, there's a problem in poor black communities. Alabama, there are communities where people just don't have any and they've just got sewage in their yards. There's been a lot of write-ups about her work in the New York Times and the New Yorker and a lot of big magazines in the U.S. that are very well read. Um, and she's been a huge advocate for addressing this huge inequity. And we all think it's happening overseas in distant remote lands where there's no infrastructure, but it's not. It's happening in New Zealand. It's happening in the UK. It's happening in Europe. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how well developed you are as an economy. It's happening in your backyard. Yeah. I mean, I play games sometimes with myself where I go Google. I Google like a city. I'm like, um, Atlanta, Georgia, sewage pollution or sewage release. And I, I find it every time, any time, any random town I choose, I can always find how they dumped 30 million gallons of sewage because of some 
breach or storm or whatever. It's it's an everywhere problem. The awareness is growing day by day, isn't it? People are turning onto this and they're tuning in and they're realizing that it is a major issue. And unless something's done, it's not going to get any better on its own. Absolutely. We've talked a lot about the need for film. I've got filmmakers that want to play around with this. And I think we're trying to decide, is it is it a fiction? Is it documentary? Like, But it's hard to put on film, right? This isn't stuff people want to see. We've resorted to cartoons. So we've done animations with Ocean Sewage Alliance because we didn't want to get into the nitty gritty dirty stuff. And it was also COVID. So we couldn't go out and film anything anyway when we created our films. But we were like, all right, we're going to animate, which is a great way to deal with poop. So are they already online, Stephanie? Yeah, we have social channels on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and all of that where our little films are there. And they're really about resource recovery, actually turning waste into energy. If you would like to play some of the audio of that in the podcast, I'm quite happy to do that. They're very visual, but could I send them to you? We may think we have our under control, but we don't. Literally. Across the planet, 80% of our wastewater is currently being discharged into the environment, untreated. And in all likelihood, it's happening somewhere near you. It's an issue that's been kept out of sight, out of mind. We are here to change that. The good news is, is that there are already ways to solve this problem and even more in the pipeline, so to speak. It all begins with realizing the powerful potential of poo. You see, human poo and pee can make for an incredible, versatile resource. It can become biofuel to power houses, cook meals, and light up schools. It can be treated to create clean water for bathing and creating your favorite drink. It can become a nutrient-dense fertilizer to grow food to eat. Poo and pee have endless possibilities. It's only waste when we waste it. That's been the nice thing about the podcast, that it originally attracted listeners just in that portable toilet space. But the demographic and the analysis that I've getting over the last year has been that it's broader now. And certainly review on the BBC and in the Guardian newspaper helped me reach a wider audience of people who perhaps hadn't thought about septic or sewage waste as a podcast subject. You know, you should have like an annual like poop joke podcast where people have to submit their best poop jokes. <laughs> there is another podcast called Hey Poopy. They've very much taken a, a humorous slant. So, so they feature all of the really weird and I'm going to the terrible pun, but they talk about all the anal stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I've tried to be more business focused. <laughs> yeah. Well, we decided to take, because we felt like this is such a doom and gloom topic when you're talking about how we're polluting the oceans with human waste and and we're so tired of hearing all the horrible things that people are doing to our planet that we decided to take a humorous approach, you know? And so we play a lot with the puns and the taboo. And we felt like our strategy from for Ocean Sewage Alliance was really to break taboo because, I mean, it's my belief that taboo is one of the reasons why we're in this situation right now. I feel like if all of these things weren't taboo, we'd be addressing them. But people don't want to think or talk about it. If it wasn't for that Victorian reticence and sensibility, we'd have been having these conversations over the last 50 years and this wouldn't have become an issue. But people are genuinely disinclined to talk about toilets. Yeah, it's impolite. It's considered impolite. 
And that, so we don't talk about it. And so our goal is really to get people to talk about it. I, um, I've learned a lot about taboo. And one of the things I've learned is how diverse it is. So you talked about sort of the origins of the Victorian era, and that certainly has found its way into U.S. culture in terms of the taboo. I think the taboo is very similar in Commonwealth countries and, and Western, you know, U.S. But in other parts of the world, the taboo is totally different. There are countries where it's taboo to have a toilet in your house because that's thought of as being dirty and unclean, or it's taboo to share a toilet with somebody else, like to use the same toilet somebody else used. And so the taboo is very complex. And I think there are religious angles on that as well. You get into menstruating women and all sorts of different issues in some cultures, and, and that won't help the debate because if we, you know, we can't even have the conversation about it, can we? Exactly. My daughter is 12, and I'd written something recently that talked about this burden on women and girls, and especially girls that have reached puberty. And she said, well, what do girls do when they have their period and there's no toilet? And I said, they don't go to school. They just stop going to school. And they have no other way to manage it but to stay home. And so a lot of girls end up ending their education at the age of 12 or 13. Um, and then we miss out on this whole part of our population that's so critical for sustainable communities yeah. and for those women to, you know, be who they need to be in the world are, are not getting to do that. When I spoke to the people at Sanitation for Millions, that was a really important part of their mission was that it's not just about going to the bathroom. It's about menstrual health as well. Yeah, it is. And so that was that was an interesting um, conversation I just had with her last night. And she said, well, what do they do? And I said, yeah. That leads me to, I'll, I'll be flippant, but I don't mean to be. What do your kids say when you tell them that you, you specialize in ocean sewage? <laughs> well, I've always had a home office. So my kids have always been very aware of whatever my work, since they were babies, I've had a home office. Yeah. They're aware of my work. So my daughter's favorite word for the first five years was poop. <laughs> so um, she'd just be randomly sitting there and say, poop. <laughs> so for her, she just, she thinks this is great. Thinks it's normal. Yeah, this is very normal. This has become very normal because I, I, I went and got a PhD in poop. I sort of stepped aside from my career, mid-career, and went and spent two years on a dissertation focused on this. How did you sell that when you presented your, your proposal? <laughs> Well, you know, it was interesting. It was very well received. People agreed, wow, we've really ignored this. We need this new information. And and my dissertations turned into a whole huge body of work of people and organizations and momentum, not because it was brilliant, but because it was so needed. And I was filling a gap that was there that needed to be filled. It's pretty exciting. Chelsea said the same thing. I asked her that question. What did the publisher say when you pitched a book proposal all about toilets? And she said exactly the same thing, that they were like, yep, let's go. This is much needed. It's topical. It's influential. It's not been done. Let's get on with it. And it's good to hear. Yeah. So, yeah. So to answer your question, my daughter was three when I started my PhD. So for her, this is like, this is what mama does, you know, and my son was six. So... They know it all has to do with the oceans and they're used to that because that's both my husband and I are marine biologists. But um, yeah, my kid, I mean, we're always poop jokes, you know, I'm always looking for good poop jokes. We just interviewed somebody to lead the Ocean Sewage Alliance and we're bringing somebody on in March. And um, we asked during the interviews, what's your favorite poop Tell joke? Like poop joke. <laughs> you have to, you have to keep it light. You know, you have to find some humor in work that can be very 
difficult. I'm envious because I, I say to my kids, have you listened to my podcast? They're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's why I'm saying have like one episode that's just all poop jokes and then draw them in that way and then they'll get hooked. There's definitely a, let's call it a gallows humor, but it, it's certainly in the portable toilet industry. The culture is definitely humor based, whether it's taking photographs of what you've found, you just shake your head like, how does that happen? Actually, that's funny you say that because my team today that we were talking about our social media strategy and what kind of content we wanted to focus on, we were like, we should do a whole thing on what's the weirdest thing that you flush down the toilet. And I told them this crazy story of me flushing a mouse in a mouse trap down the toilet accidentally. It was not on purpose. It was a very long story, but um, we were like, yeah, that, that would be really interesting to just raise awareness around all the things we should not be flushing down the toilet. Oh, that's how Dennis Nielsen, the serial killer, was caught in London because he flushed bodies down the toilet. Oh, what? Really? Google Dennis Nielsen. It's a, a hugely infamous okay. case where it, it was multiple young men were murdered oh God. And, and disposed of down the drains. And it was the local drainage guy came to sort out the block drains who discovered it. Wow. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, there's something to be said for us appreciating what does get flushed down the toilet. I was just talking to a friend before this, um, a scientist in Australia, and he said, well, have you heard of Bondi mullet? And um, have you heard of Bondi mullet, Pete? Here, a mullet is shaved on the sides and long down the, the back. Right. It's the business in the front, party in the back. But the mullet is also a fish. And at Bondi Beach in Australia, you know, super famous beach in Australia, yeah. there is a sewage outfall right there at the beach. And people joke about the Bondi mullet, which is basically a poop turd. So when you see a poop turd, you're like, oh, there's the Bondi mullet. And that's like an iconic beach as well. You can't, what were they thinking when they put that in? Right. And do people know, you know, all the tourists that are coming to Bondi Beach, but I'm sure the surfers know, but yeah, it's just everywhere. And and we don't see it or we don't talk about it. So yeah. the work we're trying to do, it sounds like you're doing the same, is to just talk about this stuff and get it out. Because, you know, once you you break that taboo and allow people to talk about these things, it's like the floodgates open. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden people want to talk. I, I gave this talk. So I was at like a cocktail event. It was like a fundraiser in a fancy home. And they brought all their fancy friends to come hear me talk about coral reefs. And I did not talk about coral reefs. I talked about sewage. And it was a, you know, it wasn't like polite conversation, but I decided I wasn't going to let my hosts know that I was actually going to be talking about sewage pollution, right? And so I did. And then at the end, I was sort of flooded by people that wanted to talk about what I had shared. And Excellent. people started telling me things that I did not need to know, you know, like where they have pooped, weird experiences they've had with pooping in a bucket, you know, in the woods or whatever. All of a sudden they thought it was perfectly okay to share all of their poop stories with me at this cocktail. And it was because I gave them permission. Like, Hey, this is part of being a human being. Let's talk about it so we can solve this problem. Jack Sims said it. Everybody is a toilet expert from the day you're born. Everyone is involved in this. It's not something that happens to some people and others. We're all involved. And, uh, you know, I think that the pressure's on us all, really, to start making a difference at a personal level, local level, regional and national. And, you know, if I can play a part in that, I'd be delighted to. 
I don't imagine that we'll solve all of the problems in six months or a year, but it, it needs a cultural shift, a mindset shift for people to A, start having these conversations and then B, think that the gold standard plum sewer is not necessarily the best solution for everybody. Exactly. And yeah, there's no immediate solution here. This is something that is going to be the work of many over a period of time, as are most difficult things. And this is where every human is involved on the planet. You can't say that about everything, every big threat we face. And this one, we're all contributing and we can all be a part of it. That sounds very like kumbaya, but we can all be a part of the solution. Is there anything else that we want to add and encourage listeners to do as a result of this conversation? Something that somebody could do today is to make sure they're not dumping fat down their sink. For example, no grease or oil. Make sure that they're not dumping anything in their toilet. As you said, pee, poop, and paper. Those are the only things that belong in your toilet. And if you're in a place where you have a lot of rain and a combined sewer overflow, just hold your shower or your dishes until the rain stops. Just the basic things. Being mindful. And remember, it's not flush it and forget it. We really do need to remember that there is something that is receiving whatever we're putting down the drain or down the toilet. And that's just a mindfulness about that. But that's the, you know, the first step, very simple, easy to do. Excellent. That's great advice and easy to follow. Absolutely. It's not too late. And there are actually some phenomenal things that can come out of taking steps to solve the problem. Some really exciting things that will actually help us into the future, which is exciting. Hopefully that's a positive note to end on. Yeah, this is fun. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you very much. And I'll be in touch soon. Okay, excellent. Take care. Enjoy your day. And you. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I really did enjoy that interview, and I'd like to thank Stephanie for joining me on the show. I'm sure we're going to meet her again, but in the meantime, I'll add links to the notes for this episode so that you can visit both the Nature Conservancy and the Ocean Sewage Alliance to find out more about their work. Before I end today, I'd like to share a brief update about the rest of the season. 2022 is my third year as the creator and host of Get Flushed. I produced 32 episodes in the first year and 40 in the second. And for two years, I've published a new episode every weekend. That formula worked really well, but I'm going to change things just a little in 2022. I'm going to release episodes on the 3rd, 13th and 23rd of each month this year instead of every weekend, and I'm aiming to produce 30 episodes with just a short break about halfway through July. I'm happy to admit I've done this to give myself a little longer to produce each show, but still maintain a regular schedule for you, the listener. And I hope that makes sense. I'll close by telling you that my guest in our next episode is Lena Zeldovich, the author of a fabulous new book called The Other Dark Matter. I spoke with Lena last week, and when I sent her a pre-release of the audio, she replied, Thanks, Pete. It sounds great. I think it's my best interview so far. I agree with Lena. The interview sounds great, and I'm really excited to bring you that episode, which will be available from Thursday, March 3rd. Okay, that's all for this one. Thanks for your time. I've been Pete. And once again, you've been listening to Get Flushed, the world's favourite sanitation podcast. 